Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Middle Eastern Studies podcast. I'm Dr. Aaron Hagler, Associate Professor of Middle Eastern History at Troy University and one of the hosts of the podcast. Today, I am speaking with Professor Farzana Hamasi, Associate Professor of Ethnomusicology at the University of Toronto. Farzana is the author of Tarangelis Dreaming, Intimacy and Imagination in Southern California's Iranian Pop Music. The title obviously refers to the song California Dreamin', but in this case, the dreaming refers to the active imagining or reimagining of Persian and Iranian identity by the artistic community that relocated to Southern California following the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran. In our discussion, Farzana and I discuss the history of popular music in Iran, the correlation between notions of morality and music in general, and women's voices in particular, and the kind of cultural output that is generated by an artistic community in a highly politicized and not impoverished diaspora. We talk about a couple of artists she highlights in her book, Gugush and Dariush Egwali, and discuss their personal and political messages, as well as Farzana's personal experience of their music. Now, to our topic. Farzana, thank you for being here with us to discuss your recent book, and congratulations on it. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. So, okay, your book, uh, Terangelis Dreaming, uh, discusses the diasporic Iranian community in Southern California, and uh, because of its existence outside of the control of the Iranian government, the music and culture generated by Iranians living in Southern California, uh, and how they express, this is a quote, express modes of Iranianness not possible in Iran. You trace the development of Iranian music in the early part of the 20th century as it became more permissive through the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s under the Shahs, and and then discuss how when the revolution happened and artists were, were vilified by the new government, many of them fled to Los Angeles, where for a variety of reasons, there was already a large and growing Iranian community. The synergy between Iranian producers already living in Southern California and the newly arrived Iranian stars uh, gave rise to a stylistically eclectic body of cultural output like music, but one which nonetheless uh, has offered Iranians and Persians everywhere, including in Iran, an Iranian identity that is not shaped by the government of the Ayatollahs. But before we get into the book, I'd like to take the opportunity both for myself and for our listeners to get to know you a little better. Uh, Can you say something about your scholarly journey, where you are today, and and how you got here? Sure. Um, Thanks for that. And I'll I'll try and go back to some of the the points that you, um, the topics that you brought out as you were were giving the summary once I get to talking about the book. But uh, first, Let's see. Well, I'm an associate professor of ethnomusicology at the University of Toronto now. I've been here since 2013. Um, I guess I'll work backwards. I did my PhD in ethnomusicology at Columbia University in New York City. And before that, I went to Oberlin College in Ohio. Um, so my scholarly journey is pretty connected, as most people's are, to, um, to my personal uh, background. Um, I'm Iranian-American in a very literal sense. My mother is american from Texas, um, and married and met my father in nineteen in the early nineteen seventies when my father was studying and getting his PhD at Indiana University. So they um, moved to Iran and had me a few years before the revolution. Um, we lived in Iran until around nineteen eighty, 
And then I lived in the United States ever since then. So um, I've always been interested in music. My mom is a musician by training. My father has a great love of music um, and is quite a good singer, even though he doesn't sing very often, (laughs) um, except for me uh, and maybe occasionally for his grandchildren. Um, But uh, I think as I was growing up, um, I had some exposure to uh, Iranian classical music, certainly, um, and then in social occasions to Iranian pop music. And um, I always thought that I, you know, from the time I was in high school, I learned about ethnomusicology and thought that I would become an ethnomusicologist later. Uh, Once I came into um, graduate school and it came time to decide on a topic, the subject of Iranian pop music seemed uh, like a a good one for me to pursue because it had always been something that had puzzled me. Um, What puzzled me about it was that uh, it was ubiquitous at social events that I would go to in, um, in the Midwest where my father's family and my father eventually lived. Um, But it wasn't particularly respected by the people that, um, that I was uh, hanging around with. Um, So that it was both essential and kind of, maybe a little embarrassing to a lot of people. Um, and um, But at the same time, no party was complete without it, without some sort of happy music um, that <laughs> was Iranian. For a long time, I was confused about where it came from. So um, my interest in this topic as a dissertation topic and eventually a book um, was cemented when I went back to Iran a few times in the late 90s and 2000s and found that my cousins and other people that I met in Iran actually knew the music that had been produced in Los Angeles by Iranian expatriates better than I did, that they were up on the new releases, and that this kind of uh, what ended up, I realized, to be a transnational traffic from uh, of Iranians going to Los Angeles, Iranian music from Los Angeles going back to Iran and circulating in diaspora at the same time, was something that was somehow connecting us, even if it was something people didn't necessarily talk about, or if they did talk about it, they might talk about it as a fan, or in the in my family at least, somewhat derisively. So, um, as uh, as it, again, as it came time to do a, uh, did you hear that ding? By the way. I did. It's okay. okay. Don't worry about it. All right. Um, as it came time to uh, choose a dissertation topic, I was really attracted to doing, to doing popular music, which at that time in the 2000s was not very much studied in the Middle East. Um, and um, and to think also about diaspora um, and research that I um, research that would would help me uh, understand things about my upbringing and about other people that I knew in a way um, that just sort of casual observation and the kinds of conversations I would have at parties would never let me do. So um, yeah, the book uh, emerged that way. And let's see, I could tell you a little bit about doing the research itself, but maybe I'll wait and see what you want me to, what you, what idea you have for me to talk about next. Would you like sure. to go right there? It, it strikes me uh, that this was something that was very personal for you right from the beginning. Um, and, and so I, I love that it's something that you kind of came to naturally having grown up with the music and then deciding to study it. I guess my first question would be, how different was it for you to, to engage with it on a scholarly level? You know, this thing you've always heard in the background at parties, now you're researching it uh, in an academic sense. Did that, did that change? I mean, I guess, how did that change the experience of the music for you? Well, it helped me learn a lot more, um, obviously, but I think um, the 
It's, a, it's an interesting question. So I guess one thing to say is that Iranian music scholarship, um, both in Iran and outside of the country, has for the most part been focused on Iranian art music. Iranians are, are rightfully proud of their art music, and it's something um, that is... Um, um, you know, one of its civilizational um, accomplishments, um, just as we might think of Indian art music or of um, Arab art music, etc. So the focus is really on, in scholarship, has been on art music as um, as elevated, as close, as somewhat esoteric in the sense that it um, has a spiritual dimension. Um, the poetry that tends to be sung in in art music is. Um, um, mystical, um, romantic, but often with a mystical bent, um, sort of metaphorically speaking about the relationship between the divine um, beloved and the uh, earthly lover, and so on. Um, so these were ty- types of topics that um, music scholars um, in and outside of the country were proud of, right? So this, so thinking about studying something that people weren't necessarily proud of um, was... Um, was a bit different. And I talk a little bit about in my book about um, having people <laughs> really not take take me seriously as a result of also of me studying something that many intellectual Iranians um, don't also take very seriously. Um, mm-hmm. But that was also what really attracted me to it. So to understand some of that, I think we have to get into a little bit of the meat of the book, um, which is... Um, which is thinking about high and low culture in, in an Iranian um, context and also um, the moral dimensions of high and low culture. So mm-hmm. um, one of the critical, you know, the critical, the moment of, of birth for, for Iranian popular music in diaspora is the revolution. Um, and it's uh, the result of a changing government um, and a changing set of ideals um, to eradicate um, immorality, um, Western uh, harmful aspects of Western culture, um, imperialism, etc. From not only the government but also from the cultural sphere that it that is um, both streams through people's personal and public lives. So. Um, Popular music was really considered problematic in um, in the revolution, not only for a couple of reasons, uh, some of which were rather new, and others of which were pretty old. Um, one is a one of the most important things, and the one that I guess gets touted the most when people think about um, or write about Iranian popular or Iranian music and Iranian society is the moral issue. So it's pretty well known, I think, that um, in uh, a lot of Islamic sources um, and in Islamic jurisprudence, particularly Shiite jurisprudence within that's important within Iran, that music, musiqi, has a um, ambiguous at best position. It can be considered, has been described as as a um, an art form that can potentially lead people astray. It has sort of shares a space with other types of immoral behavior or vice so that, you know, um, the sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll that we think of in, in the West has a sort of corollary in, um, in some uh, religious writings. And 
and as a result had some corollary, or not maybe as a result, but in tandem had some corollary um, beliefs among regular people. So that we have accounts, say, from the late 19th century of motrebs, who are professional musicians, um, hiding their instruments underneath their cloaks as they would go from house to house, um, or from their home to a gig at somebody else's house, because they were afraid that religious zealots would come and beat them for having mm-hmm. for having an instrument, or people breaking instruments, or hiding the fact that they enjoyed music. Um, so this, but this kind of, you know, things are always more complex than, uh, you know, religious doctrine um, being declared or, uh, and then, you know, what people actually do in their regular life is quite different oftentimes. So even though we have these, um, this kind, these kinds of writings, we have a regular belief um, of the uh, a common belief in the potential sinfulness of of music, we also have plenty of music being developed in in um, in Iran and at this art music tradition that I was talking about before. But also lots of stuff that doesn't quite fall into that category. So a lot of body songs, for instance, dance pieces, instrumental pieces, folk music, which would be stuff that's played outside of the courts and so on. So popular music in by the 1970s comes out of um, the combination of sort of um, party music, entertainment music, and a sort of hybrid uh, cross-pollination with Western music um, that enters the country, as, uh, you know, for a long time, but especially um, with the uh, in the 1940s with um, World War II, with um, radio foreign. Um, foreign soldiers in the country with uh, record players and radio becoming more popular. And so um, uh, popular music develops in Iran as, and when I'm talking about popular music, I talk, I'm ta- I mean mass mediated recorded um, music that is meant primarily for, for entertainment and viewed as entertainment rather than say edification or spiritual purposes, something like that. And that is also commercial. So um, popular music, um, is everywhere by the 1970s, which is a big difference from hiding your instruments under your cloak in the early, you know, in the early 20th or late 19th century. Um, so, and because of you know some of what I've what I've just said here about this background and, and um, history, the the reason that popular music becomes targeted in the revolution is because it it occupies both the um, immoral from a historically, from a historical and long-standing cultural perspective, right? As immoral as being sinful, something like that, and it's also kind of politically incorrect. It's so, uh, it's so much the product of of Western um, of Western cultural contact too. So that the popular music, for instance, I haven't really given you example of that, but that popular music in the late nineteen twenties. Um, or in the late 20th century includes mostly Western instruments um, and um, it, a Western song form and folks dressed in very, very Western clothing and very crucially um, unveiled women who are singing on stage and perhaps dancing and that kind of thing. So right, well, all of that, all of that kind of uh, goes in tandem with what was going on politically in Iran at the time, right? Absolutely. And that's, I think, you know, it, again, it's, it's, it's impossible to think about music in Iran without thinking about it um, in terms of its connections to politics. And that actually is one of the, <laughs> can 
be kind of an annoying thing about it in a sense, not annoying, but it can be hard to see it for anything beyond its political and historical um, connotations, or at least that is so prevalent in the, in the scholarship that's, that's about it. Um, we can talk about the, that a bit later, but uh, sure. Yeah. You, you mentioned this uh, kind of dichotomy between high and low music and music that was moral and music that was immoral. And I think uh, that I, I see um, in the existence of these pop songs, especially after the revolution, which we can get to in a second, uh, this opportunity, not, not just to be immoral, if you will, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to cast judgment on it, right. but, but to, to criticize the notions of moral purity and national suffering. And I wonder if that's something, uh, especially in the context of the revolution, that could only emerge in a, in a diaspora. Right. There, I guess there's a larger point maybe to be made about the the cultural energy that's generated and motivated by existence in a diaspora, whether it be an Iranian diaspora or a Jewish diaspora or a Palestinian diaspora, a Chinese diaspora, kind of the, the view from outside. Uh, but even with that, I find that from reading your book that the creation of the cultural entity of Terangelis was was maybe unique in this kind of sudden self-conscious engagement in particular with notions of moral purity and national suffering would you would you agree with that assessment yeah and i think what's important is that you know as as you know it, not I, the, the reason a diaspora exists its defining moment how it comes into being why it happens the way it does is all really important to what shape its cultural formations eventually take and so you know if when i think comparatively as as especially in graduate school one needs to do about like well what is this like what is the Iranian music industry in Los Angeles like elsewhere? Is it like, is it, is it not like Mexican Americans, right? It's not like, it's not like a lot of other diasporas. It's not like South Asians in, in Cleveland. It's not like that. It is like more like other diasporas that are politically um, that come from political revolutions. So I think a post, it's a post-revolutionary diaspora and it's a particular kind of revolution. So, um, that emphasizes morality, um, and, and what the very, and as most political revolutions do, it questions, what are the very tenets of, uh, foundations of our, of our politics, of our society, of our history that we want to emphasize and which ones do we want to make just absolutely go away. So that for instance, you can draw a history of Iran that is centered around the monarchy, which is exactly, you can say, oh, there's been monarchs in Iran for, you know, 2,500 years or whatever. And you can draw, make a rationale for the kind of government that you had had in Iran prior to the revolution that way, or you can do an alternative or a different type of um of genealogy that that is similarly um based in history but talks about the importance of islam right um it has a it's islam came more recently to iran but that makes it no less legitimate especially um so you know when i think about comparisons and what it's like and what what how the how why the kinds of politics and moral issues became so important in los angeles i also think about say cubans in miami or taiwanese um after the establishment of the people's republic of china and how um disagreements and really vehement feelings about the homeland are not are not only about nostalgia or about missing or about or about mere alternative but about actual counter in some cases counter revolutionary ideals um, or aesthetics 
So that, for instance, in the Iranian case, if Islam is very important, uh, one very important might be an understatement, in post-revolutionary <laughs> Islamic Republic, um, in diaspora, not everywhere in diaspora, but in Los Angeles and media especially, um, it was hardly, hardly a thing, you know, it was hardly there. So that... Um, you know, you wouldn't know from watching television in Los Angeles that it was Moharram uh, time of mourning, uh, month of mourning, or that it was time to fast, that it was Ramadan. These religious holidays that would be observed in Iran before the revolution and would have been highly observed, and even there would be like sort of entertainment blackout periods for some of these very somber festivals. It's almost the opposite in in um, in Los Angeles. So. Um, Again, this isn't for everybody, but for the mainstream media there in diaspora. So I guess to go back to one of your earlier statements at the when you were describing the book, in a sense, it is absolutely true that the that the Iranian uh, cultural, um, you know, diasporic culture in in Southern California that I'm calling Tehranjalis, like other people do, is not shaped by the government. On the other hand, it is completely shaped in reaction to the government, um, mm. and so in that way, there is a. Uh, you know, what I've been interested in the book is looking at that relationship of push and pull between the two and that it sometimes is one is copying the other. So for instance, the Iranian government, um, allows the production of popular music after vehement, after Khomeini vehemently deny, um, you know, says that it's unacceptable within the Islamic Republic. They allow it in the, in the early or in the late 1990s as a way to compete with what's coming out of Los Angeles. So it's a little bit of a, if you can't beat them, join them, you know, in your own way. Um, or, um, you know, just in, on a more aesthetic level, how um, now more artists in Los Angeles are starting to look to what the musical trends within Iran are so that they can kind of get their inspiration there. That's a more typical diaspora pattern where, where the folks abroad are looking to those at home to try and sort of keep up with them or appeal to them or stay connected to them. But because for a long time there wasn't a popular music industry or popular, much popular music being produced in, in Iran, um, especially right after the revolution, um, the diaspora was more the trendsetter um, than, and the, the, the source of production rather than the homeland. So there's really um, the dynamics are, are, you know, every diaspora is different at the same time when we think about, you know, we, as scholars, we're always looking for the patterns um, and the uh, commonalities to sort of theorize or come up with a typology, et cetera. So I guess mm -hmm. just to go back to, to what you were saying before, I think the kind of diaspora is really important. So I've dreamed one day of maybe doing something on comparative um, revolutionary diasporas, for instance, to think about what, what does it look like when people are debating culture and politics um, yeah, the, the the thing that popped into my head as you were just talking was that it sounds like there were kind of two parallel conversations going on between artists in LA and artists in Iran. One is stylistic and the other is related to identity. And these are kind of two conversations happening at the same time. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it could be that. And and then, you know, once we get into um, to a time when, you know, it's... 
I guess where I'm getting caught is that, that the relationships have changed so much over time and that it's, um, it's almost like we need to look at a snapshot of certain moments in order to understand what the relationships are at any given moment. So for instance, in 2013, um, we start, I think it's 2013. I'm forgetting my own data here. Um, we have, um, <laughs> artists who are artists in Los Angeles who are, are working with artists within Iran to write their lyrics and write their music. Well, this is an amazing development. It may not sound like a big deal to folks who are listening or unfamiliar with this this, this scene, but um, to actually work with artists within Iran is a risk for the artists within Iran who are really not supposed to be collaborating with uh, you know these degenerate quote unquote degenerate musicians in Los Angeles. Um, and it, but it's also a political, a bit of a political. Um, uh, I don't want to say minefield, but it's a little dodgy in diaspora as well, because so many people, especially in Los Angeles, but not only there, take such a negative view of any musician who works within the government system, um, because they consider it to be, you know, working with the government, essentially, which of course it is, but it also is maybe one of the only ways that you can um, have a successful or active music career is to, to accommodate and work within some sort of system somehow. So, you know, that's a relationship at a certain moment in time. But uh, other ones are, you know, for instance, earlier in the, in the maybe late 1990s, early 2000s, we have musicians who... Um, who sound so much, whose voices sound so similar to certain very famous artists in Los Angeles that people can't even tell the difference between them. So that the government, the, the quote unquote government product is, is, uh, is building on and maybe hoping to be misrecognized for the, for the diaspora product, uh, which wow. then just shows you how successful the diaspora product has been, you know, so that you can't even tell where something is produced, which then confuses the issue and then maybe helps us get away from seeing popular music from Los Angeles as subversive. Because if the, what you can get from the government sounds exactly like it, then what's subversive about the style? You know, it's so maybe it's, maybe it's already subverted things in that it forces the Iranian government to engage in that kind of production. Maybe, but if it, yeah, I guess so. But I don't think I don't I don't know how many people would ever would see it that way that I've been talking to anyway because it's because it's not a it's such a surface level thing and it's very sort of if they can if if it's something if it's profitable. Uh, and I mean profitable in terms of being a, an activity that is good to engage in, not only to make money from, but also mm -hmm. in a winning hearts and minds of your own folks. Then, then it's then it's justifiable, justifiable, right? There's no, there's very little ideological purity on either side of this of this border. <laughs> no, wow. So maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the specific artists you discuss in the book, um, and and this seems to be this uh, big discourse going on uh, surrounding Persian identity, and maybe talk about some of the specific artists and uh, their contributions to that discourse. Sure, um, I um, I guess I'll. I've tried to think about writing the book in such a way that there were a f uh, at least one or two figures, main figures that were um, sort of highlighted in each um, in each chapter, and with the thought that for people who do know about this music, who've maybe grown up listening to it or fans, that they'll want to know about the artists, and others for other people who don't know and maybe are looking just to learn something something new, that they should know who these artists are because they're fascinating, really fascinating people. Um, 
the end of the book, I'm sort of, I designed the book in such a way that I would think about um, uh, having two uh, celebrity case studies at the very end. So um, the fourth chapter is about the most famous uh, female singer of popular music um, prior to the revolution and then again afterwards, whose name is Gugush. Gugush um, is totally fascinating, and I'll just, I'll come back to her in a second, just to say that the fifth chapter is about a singer who also goes by his first name, Daryush, um, also by his first and last name, Daryush Ekwali. Um, Gugush's real name is Fa'ere Atashin, but everybody calls her Gugush. So um, Gugush is... Uh, a total icon, diva, you know, any type of any type of metaphor or term you want to use uh, to signify massive celebrity um, will work, basically, in her case. She was a child star who was in television and film as a um, starting from the time she was 10. She was also a stage performer when she was a toddler. Her father was a professional um, professional entertainer, acrobat, um, stage showman who, who traveled. And Gugush was a working child actor making money by the, from the time she was very, very small. She, in her teens, um, began also singing as a soloist. She was always a singer and quite a good singer. A lot of the films that were made in Iran prior to the revolution were musicals. Um, and so she often had singing roles in those, um, but she started singing in the newly developed musiki um, pop or pop music um, genre in the late 1960s and 1970s. Um, she her she was famous um, because she had a great voice and because she was um, a terrific interpreter of of uh, often really sentimental um, kind of sad. Um, romantic ballads and other songs, um, other styles, some, some more upbeat, um, but also because she was a, she was beautiful and a chameleon, a real, um, fashion plate who would wear all types of the latest Western fashions, um, and sometimes kind of outlandish stuff like cowboy hats. And, uh, you know, uh, I think I've seen her in some like sort of oriental you know quote-unquote oriental garb here and there she's like sitting in front of there's one great uh video of her man oh madame um, which is um of her sitting in front of a pyramid uh with like a dorothy hamill bowl cut in a robe she looks like she's like at some ashram or something anyway she's totally fascinating in terms of her physical appearance and her like very graceful dancing and super expressive face so she was just uh, hugely famous. Um, she was a nightclub performer, the classiest nightclubs. She performed for the Shaw. She performed um, and she continued her film career and won awards and so on and so forth. So when the revolution came, lots and lots of um, music celebrities found their way out of the country. But Gugush decided to stay in Iran. She decided not to leave Um and um, so until the year 2000, nobody heard too much from her. And so in her absence, people um, sort of paid attention to her in a new way, you know, taking all of the um, lots of footage from her old movies and putting them onto video, circulating those um collecting photographs of her, putting collections online once once the internet came um, into being and came, became really important for uh, Iranians and other diasporic groups. Um, and um, she was sort of celebrated as, um, 
as this representative of the apex of Iranian pre-revolutionary westernization, modernization. You know, she was this woman who was very vocal, who was very um, exposed in the sense and seemed in a sense to have some sort of self-determination, you know, um, or at least some ability to change how she looked. Now this is always competing discourse about Gugush that she's somebody who's been controlled by other people her entire life. So how much was she in control of her career and how much was she the talented young woman who other people were putting on the stage, everybody from her father to her subsequent husband slash managers to, you know, so, and then silenced by a sort of masculinist, you know, uh, regime uh, is sort of the, the discourse. So in 2000, Gugush leaves Iran. She's given a passport. She's um, says she's going to make a film in Cuba. She's given permission to leave and she never comes back. She um, goes on a world tour and, um, and you know, everybody's, everybody freaks out basically, <laughs> you know, uh, the person that they never thought they'd see again is on stage and she's mounts a comeback, an incredible comeback so that, um, and this completely changes the the music industry in Los Angeles because, you know, in a sense, I think people had sort of benefited from her absence. She had been such a, a big thing, but she wasn't around. Um, and so music and music industry developed independently of her. But then she, she came, she moved first to Toronto um, and then finally um, moved to Los Angeles and got involved um, in the diaspora music industry and based in Los Angeles and much more. Um, So in the chapter, I talk mostly about her um, post-revolutionary career and sort of how she was uh, viewed um, as the silenced songbird um, for a long time, who is in a sense a metaphor for Iran itself, for people who are partial to that kind of of thinking that she, that, um, that she becomes a metaphor um, for uh, for Iran's silencing, um, and so the chapter is is about her, but it's also about how female singing voices, which are the most restricted musical medium in post revolutionary Iran, I'll come back to that in a second, how the female singing voice has gotten tasked with all of this metaphorical political work uh, in in ways that are related to the way that. Uh, typical ways we, we um, associate voice and agency and self-expression in Western thought. Um, there's a lot of overlap there, but also in ways that um, are more connected to um, the use of ideas of voice and complaint and screaming and shouting um, in Iranian poetry um, and um, Iranian and Persian language. So um, I can come back to that, but I first want to just go to the the issue of women's of restricted restricting women's voices. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked a little bit about already how post revolutionary by the 1990s um, we have a popular music industry in in Iran that's been legitimated by the government and then becomes really important. Um, you know these artists who are in Iran now have lots of fans. They have big concerts and so on. But they're all male. All the vocalists are male. Um, women can play instruments, but they're not allowed to sing solo in Iran. And um, the reason for the great restriction on this is because a woman singing by herself is um, is linked conceptually to the idea of her being uncovered. It's immodest. It's it's a part of her body. Her voice is a, is so seductive and such a part of her body that to reveal it. Um, 
for it to be audible and to be the focus of intense attention is, um, is inappropriate. So um, women can sing in choirs. They can even sing duets with men. They can sing duets with each other. Um, but a solo female artist, such uh, on a stage by herself, regardless of genre, in front of a mixed sex audience is not allowed. Um, so women, this extends to recorded media. Women can't also be heard on, on, um, on recordings by, by men. So this means that female artists within Iran, female vocalists within Iran, when they record their music, they can only do it themselves. They can't do it, say, um, they can't do it legitimately. Um, Hmm. and, um, so this means that the female voice is, you know, more or less literally suppressed in a, in a public forum and, um, and within Iran and, and extends outside, you know, so that the, if you want to hear solo female Iranian singers and you're a man, you have to go outside. I didn't talk about female only concerts, but there is a female only concert, um, uh, phenomenon within Iran. And within those contexts, women are, are welcome to sing for each other. Um, but no men can be present because it's, um, it would expose, uh, men to, uh, sort of, um, the woman's intimate sphere, the woman's, uh, voice in a way that would be inappropriate. Um, so again, none of this has to do with what's happening in people's homes necessarily, but, uh, in the, we're talking about the official public sphere, Gugush, um, Gugush as the most um, audible pre-revolutionary singer coming back out and singing again after the revolution was a very big deal and that she did it from Los Angeles and so on was, was especially big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so the chapter talks about some of her various projects that um, make good use of that metaphor of the female voice and ways that she may, she has capitalized on it. Um, and I hope that the chapter isn't too critical of her. I think it is a little critical, but I'm also just really interested in how how productive she's been um, using that. So uh, one of the things that I focus on in the end is a, I, I have a separate article about this. I don't go get into it so much in the book, is the um, Gugush Music Academy, which is a televised talent show uh, where she um, has young Iranians from diaspora come and compete for her and um and you know they she works with them so that they can become uh, better singers, so like like American Idol or something like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but um, you know there there's a definite political bent to encouraging um, young Iranian women in particular to come on stage and sing, um, having them do something that they very explicitly can't do within Iran but can do outside and then sending those satellite television broadcasts of the program back into Iran for people to see really, you know, puts on display that just across the border, there's a whole other way of, of being. And for these expatriate media producers to say, um, look, you know, here we are, we're doing this, we're having this whole other way of being Iranian together that, um, the government doesn't officially allow for, um, within the country. So, yeah, I'm going to take a drink of water here. (laughs) While while you take a drink of water, I'll I'll ask my next question, which is how did the government react when she left, when she, you know, when she surfaced elsewhere in the world and is starting to sing again? And I I, I imagine that they probably thought they had her, um, I don't know if muzzled is the right word or not, but maybe they felt like they had her controlled. And then all of a sudden she wasn't. 
Uh, and you mentioned being critical of her. What did she do that you were critical of? And what was the, um, I guess, what did she do with the opportunity to speak or to sing, I guess, when she had it? Yeah. So, yeah, two questions. One is the, about the government's response. Well, they were mad. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe it was a simple question. Yeah. Yeah, they were mad. And I think maybe what Bear's saying here is that once somebody leaves under those conditions, they don't they don't get to go back to Iran without repercussions. So mm-hmm. um, you are basically signing up for yourself. You're choosing exile when you when you do something like that, unless you decide to to um, deal with whatever consequences uh, the government imposes on you. So you know, and the, she's not alone in having done that. Lots of lots of artists and musicians and other people have also decided to leave. But she was. This was very high profile. Um, so your second question, Aaron, I just lost it. Uh-huh. What was I critical of? No, yeah. yeah. What did she what did she what did she do with her voice once yeah. she was out? Right. Yeah. So um the chapter opens with um a song um that she released in 2009, around the time of the what we now call the Green Movement. It was an uprising in response to the um uh, what a lot of people call the stolen election by Ahmadinejad, who was the president, um, re- was re-elected for president, uh, so the government said, but a lot of people believe that he wasn't um, legitimately elected and put back in power. There were huge protests, mm-hmm. and a lot of people were arrested, protesters were killed, and so on. So um, she, uh, Gugush, along with a lot of other um, artists in Iranian expatriates, um, got involved in making statements about about the uprising, encouraging the protesters, but also sympathizing with how difficult it was for them. During this time, she released a song called I Am Iran, or I Am That Very Iran, Man Hamun Iran, um, that was written, um, you know, Gugush doesn't write any of her own material, um, but she um, was written by, um, the words were written by Raha Etemadi, who is um, uh, a different generation than Gugush, a much younger guy, and he, but he wrote the 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 poem in such a way that Gugush took on the role of Iran literally as a, as a woman who was um, asking her children to come back and save her um, and saying how much she missed them and could they please come back and look how much she had suffered within their absence. Um, the interpretation that I bring to that is that she's asking her children in diaspora to come back to her and, and help her. And, um, you know that's that's kind of all well and and good, but it's I think this ties into one of the things people often say about more politically motivated um, programming that comes out of uh, out of the Iranian diaspora and especially out of but not only out of Los Angeles that much of it encourages political action within Iran, but it's very different to encourage and be active politically when you're on the ground within the country, having to deal with the risks and the constraints and also the difficulties of making it in daily life. The economy is terrible in Iran, you know, just daily life stuff is difficult. Um, Mm Versus being in diaspora from the comfort of your own, you know, your air conditioned studio in Southern California, encouraging people to do this and that when, um, when, you know, you have no intention or, or maybe ability, but also, but maybe, but also no intention of going back and doing these things yourself. It's, it's, um, it does, that's one of the things that leads to some cynicism about, um, um, political statements in support of politics within Iran or political agitation within Iran from diaspora. And that cynicism extends from, um, to, I should say, to some audiences in Iran and audiences in diaspora as well. 
So um, I think um, another another issue is that for um, Gugush and lots of other artists, this is really this isn't meant to be critical so much as it is to talk about the complexity of their of their work. Being um, a celebrity in Iranian diaspora often, not always, often means um, having some kind of relationship with Western government-funded media sources. Uh, that could be Voice of America. It could be Radio Farda, which is uh, a part of the Broadcasting Board of Governors of the United States it could, as part of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Um, it could be BBC Persian. It could be... Um, Iran International, which is the Saudi-funded television station now. So it's not only Western governments anymore, but Saudis have gotten involved, and a lot of Iranian journalists have gone to work for this um, for this television company, which means that your politics are intertwined with um, state agendas, um, some of which I think are pretty transparently not so great for pretty, you know, I don't feel like it's a controversial statement to say that they aren't very great for, for Iran or Iranians, many of these agendas. On the other hand, um, because the media pop, the media, there's, there's really almost, you know, private media does exist, but, um, artists have have to navigate this landscape. They have to make choices. Are you going to accept the, the gig at BBC Persian? Are you going to accept the gig at Iran International? Are you going to, like Gugush did, perform in a government, US government-sponsored concert in Dubai? Um, you know, uh, it's this is the way that their, their professional landscape intersects with politics in a very, um, very... Uh, obvious way, um, which means is another way of saying that there's nothing outside of politics. So, you know, I'm trying to, I'm hope I'm trying, I'm trying to walk a line there of drawing attention to how complicated all of this is while also, um, um, while also saying these are not choices that I would necessarily make, um, and that lots of other people wouldn't necessarily make either. But to be active in this sphere means that you are faced with that scenario and look, just look at how complicated it is. Yeah. You're faced with a choice of either being involved with a government, either the Iranian or a Western one, or just not having any reach. Yeah. And I think the, it also speaks to the kinds of, you know, it's also, I also want to try and talk about the conspiracy theories that are very endemic to working in Iranian public sphere, uh, whether within the country, outside of the country, or in the spaces in between, which is that it is a very common for people to say, well, X is, you know, secretly funded by Y, or that, uh, you know, um, they're doing they're only x is only singing this song because y put them up to it or you know any anything like that is um is so important to how people understand um like causality and intention um and um kind of one of the dynamics i try and talk about in the book is no matter what an artist's intention are it or intentions might be that the merely by circulating their 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 music within this very contested and complicated transnational media landscape, they become politicized as a result. 
So, um, and they become implicated in the politics as a result. And that's true. Or, yeah, go ahead. Or at the very least, they lose their, their ability to have any say over what people do with their messaging after they've released it. Oh, yeah. And we all know how that goes, right? Oh, sure. <laughs> the, errant, <laughs> the errant tweet becomes <laughs> becomes something, or even the, the well-intentioned tweet, whatever it might be, goes into circulation. The next thing you know, there's a whole narrative that, you know, yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I just, because I mentioned him before, I want to make sure I just get to say a little bit about Dariush Ekbali, who is the, the subject of that final chapter. Dariush mm-hmm. is, is a contemporary of Gugush. He's also um, born around 1950, 51, and so, and has been very, very famous um, prior to the revolution and after the revolution. Um, his story is a little bit different and his focus is a little bit different. So like Gugush, he has also been involved in television. Um, and um, what I'm focusing on in this chapter is um, his, and he, he's also made a, has sung a lot of politically inflected songs. Um, but what's different about Dariush compared to most other artists um, who work through the Los Angeles media industries is that he's tried very hard to be a humanitarian and an activist. So I talk about his Ayane Foundation, Bonyada Ayane, which is um, devoted to addressing social maladies within Iran, and in its uh, as it began was especially focused on um, on substance abuse and addiction. So this is um, something that's very personal for Dariush. He's suffered from addiction for many years and is in recovery now. Um, and um, has made uh, with his partners in in the foundation tons of of media, music videos, programming, call in programs, advice shows, everything um, based on reaching people who are uh, Iranians who are suffering from addiction and um, offering them sort of messages of hope. Um, and uh, sometimes this is very connected to politics, and sometimes it is sort of supra supra politics or sort of outside of that i don't think there's any outside of the outside of politics but um Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily explicitly political or about overthrowing the government or something like that um so um Dariush's uh, transformation um, has under, undergone a kind of perso- persona transformation from um, somebody who was extremely uh, like sad and associated with kind of darkness um, and um, depressing lyrics and seriousness. He has these big sad eyes um, and almost um, you know the kind of almost maudlin um, lyrics and song arrangements. He has slowly transformed himself into somebody who still sings some of that repertoire and sings it in concerts because that's what people love about him, um, mm-hmm. but also has tried to become a sort of messenger of hope um, in his own words and in the words of his foundation. Um, so that that is one of my favorite chapters in the book because it was because it really allowed me to get into thinking about um, drug policy in Iran and about the American recovery movement and where um, where sort of Iranian and American sensibilities meet um, in his in his media and his activism. So mm-hmm. I enjoyed that chapter also. I you know I was put in mind of two artists I was more familiar with when I was reading it. When I when you started describing him, I thought about Nirvana. Oh yeah. And when, and when you talked about kind of how he is is healing, I thought of kind of the trajectory of Alanis Morissette's career. Ah, a little interesting. Bit. I actually From, don't know too much about her, despite living in Canada. Can you tell me? <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, her first her first songs were very angry, <laughs> and and her more recent music, I guess, is is much more hopeful. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a it's kind of a surface level comparison. It was just what what occurred to me, and I especially liked um kind of your personal take on it. You weren't you 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 didn't shy away from talking about. Um, your opinion of his music. You found him manipulative and depressive at the beginning. <laughs> and and then just talking about how your opinion of him personally kind of evolved over time as his message and his forms of activism evolved. Yeah. And I think also being, you know, I think um, th- there's a couple things to say about that. I tried to, you know, um, I've always been somebody who, who liked uh, upbeat music more. Right. And so that was, I had to get over my own, it's my own sort of prejudices <laughs> about, about, or my own preferences for for music that is really energetic. Um, and in order to really get into the sort of sadness and slowness and um, despondency that he, that he brings. But um, it was, you know, I say this, I think at the end of the chapter, but it really, it really took being at one of his concerts um, to, experience the wonder the wonder of Doriguchi, <laughs> the absolute marvel um uh, it's just people love this guy you know they love him the devotion to him the sense of intimacy with him because of his songs and because because of him being sad um and because of him expressing that so so beautifully in his music is um I, I could I could kind of get into it on my own, but um, being in a crowd of three thousand people all singing his song at the same time as he kind of just looks at us and accepts us all singing it to him <laughs> was really was really great. Yeah, so I I had a lot of I had fun with that chapter because it's um because I felt like you know I felt that it was sort of important to put a, a personal touch on it. Uh, in because it was because it was very uh, personal for me, you know, to try and think about being in touch with those feelings, being in touch with other people having these very strong emotional reactions to him, and because emotion is exactly where his music—that's the register, you know—that's where he hits. Is the- yeah, and that's that's one of the things that made the book so readable for me. I know next to nothing about Iranian pop music, but I could certainly relate to what the experience of of kind of getting music for the first time is like. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm expecting most people who who are listening to this or who will pick up the book won't will not know about this kind of music. So that's good. If that's if it's doing that, then it's doing its job. No, but if they pick up the book or if they're listening to this, they probably like music. So, that's hopefully. <laughs> yes. Um, one, one last question about the book, and it's something you kind of talk about kind of at the very end. Uh, which is that the generation that kind of founded the Tarangelis phenomenon is is aging out or, you know, coming up on retirement or, or you know, at some point in the next, maybe they live a long time, but some point soon they're going to pass away. What happens then? Does, does Los Angeles remain fertile ground for Iranian Persian identity formation, even if the Iranian artists who, who live there have never even been to Iran. What what happens? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think one of the things I've tried to be really specific about in the book is saying that this this cultural formation, this music and media industry that starts in the revolution and and 
you know, peaks probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, and, and arguably has, if not been on a decline, then at least adjusted and had to compete with lots of other now centers of media production, including people's own homes, um, you know, because it's so easy to make media um, now and, and, and disseminate it. Is here we that, are. Exactly, <laughs> here we are. Um, that this, that this, uh, this is a, a something that emerged at a specific time in a specific place. It is not um, a book about diaspora as some like eternal or long lasting phenomenon um, or, or saying that, you know, saying this is a very highly skilled generation of, of musicians who left Iran at the peak of their career with a lot of resources and who landed all in one place or mostly in one place and were able to assemble themselves quickly. Um, because there was money, um, because there are resources. This wouldn't have happened to a group of people who were destitute, you know? Um, mm -hmm. This people were able to make it work for themselves somehow. Um, so, um, you know, one thing that hasn't changed so far is that, that it is still difficult for people to make, um, you know, some people at least have difficulty making music in Iran and, and choose to leave. So we do still have, not in the same numbers, not in the same concentration, but we still do have musicians who decide that they don't want to stay in Iran anymore and they leave. Um, and um, so there's sort of an, a, an uh, musicians who have grown up in Iran and move out. It's like a renewable resource, you know, it's like a spring mm -hmm. and people just keep coming out. So um, there's, all, there's always somebody else. There's always somebody new. Not necessarily an entire generation, but uh, but always somebody new. So I think thinking about going forward, when I think about this this um, music in Los Angeles, I also think about it as being a first generation migrant phenomenon. The language is Persian. It's almost there's almost nothing recorded in English. The language of the media is Persian. It's not a second generation, third generation um, migrant formation where. Um, people are speaking in English mostly or singing in English, even though there are a lot of um, American musical influences and American sessions musicians. And that's something I really wish I could have done more research on for the book is how much the American Los Angeles context was really important here. Um, it's still mostly interdirected migrant phenomenon, right? It's not directed towards American audiences either. So, um, as younger generation, and when I mean younger generation, I mean second generation, third generation Iranians make decisions about how they want to make music and who they want to make music for, it seems so far to be more directed towards a general, you know, quote unquote, general American audience rather than towards Iranians. So whatever shape the whatever shape and whatever modes of dissemination end up coming forward, I th or coming out of um, coming out of Iranians who live in the United States going forward, um, I don't think it'll actually be very similar to what's, to what's happened in Los Angeles. I will say, though, that, um, that, you know, a lot of people have, you know, I write about a lot of nostalgia for Iran, but people of my generation, I'm 45, um, have nostalgia for Tehranjalis. You know, they have nostalgia for the Tehranjalis Tehran music that they grew up listening to in the 1980s and 90s. And so um, when I meet people around my age, whether they were in Iran or in the United States or someplace else, they say, yeah, this reminds me of my childhood. Um, and so there's a kind of kitsch, uh, nostalgia, reappraisal um, that I'm seeing more and more of, of uh, around people my own age who are ready to and interested in 
reclaiming this music, not as something that was just played at parties that people didn't really care about, or not as something that was too sad, or something that was from a very difficult period in Iranian history of whether you were in Iran or not, but as something that, um, you know, that's meaningful, meaningful to them in, in, in looking back, you know, looking back on that time period. So I think that's also something that's really fun about the book is, and for me, is in hearing people who are familiar with this or maybe grew up with this music um, or familiar with it, uh, hearing them reflect on that time period now as, as I have in the book itself. Well, I think that is a great place to leave the discussion about the book. Uh, before we sign off, well, this has been a fascinating discussion, obviously. Um, oh, would you would you mind sharing with me and the listeners what you're working on right now? Sure. Um, I have completely switched focus. I am working on um, popular or not popular music at all. I'm so used to saying that. Um, <laughs> I'm working collaboratively with graduate students and with um, researchers in the Department of Anthropology here at the University of Toronto on the musical life of um, and sonic life of a bohemian historically immigrant neighborhood in Toronto called Kensington Market. And um, I'm interested in lots of different things about it, but one of them is how city policy to promote the music sector and invest in, in music as an economic um, sector in, in, in Toronto, it sort of does and doesn't work on the ground in, in, uh, in Toronto and in this neighborhood where people aren't always so interested in complying with, uh, with city policy anyway. So yeah, super different local, um, Canadian focused collaborative rather than like monographic or a single researcher. Um, and for that reason, really fun. <laughs> it's great to be doing something different as much as I enjoy this work too. <laughs> I think that everyone in our audience can relate to that statement for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to sign off there. Farzana, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you have too. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thanks for the opportunity. It was great to meet you and get to talk with you about the book. Likewise. All right. Take care. Bye.